This morning's scripture reading is found in 1 Peter 3, 8 through 17. It's on page 115 in the Black Pew Bible in front of you. If you'll please stand for the reading of God's word. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts regard Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. You may be seated. Would you please pray with me? Father, I thank you for my brother Jonathan. I thank you for the task that you have given him this morning. I I thank you for your word. I thank you for the preaching of your word. Lord, I pray that you would speak through your servant, Jonathan, this morning. I pray that you would give him boldness, and I pray that you would strengthen him. God, I pray that you would give us open hearts and open minds to hear what you have to say to us through Jonathan. I pray that you would shape our lives uh, to be in the likeness of Christ. Lord, we love you. We thank you. We look forward to this time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, awesome. Why don't you go ahead and just uh, open up your copy of Scripture to 1 Peter. Um, glad that the, to be back teaching and preaching once again. Um, the holidays went really well for us, so I'm trusting and hoping that the holidays um, went well for you. Christmas was good for us. We stayed, we stayed at home, which is a little, little odd. We, when we were living in Louisville, we were there by ourselves. We had some family that came over. Now, oddly enough, now that we actually live close to all of our family, we found ourselves with nobody to celebrate Christmas with us. So that was odd, but, but welcome um, as well. And then uh, the New Year's, man, we were, we were crazy. Um, we were like animals on New Year's. We just slept it right in, went to bed right about 10, 10 p.m., you know, and we just, we just brought it in like a couple of rebels. So I'm not sure when you officially become like party poopers, but I think we're there. Um, so uh, we, we will wear that crown proudly, um, apparently. Um, we have a lot to, lot to cover before us this morning. Um, Advent season is over, and so what we're doing is we're turning our attention back to the book of First Peter. And we've been calling this series in First Peter the way of the cross, because from the beginning of his letter, Peter has taken us on a gospel journey. What he's been doing as he's been interacting from these pages of Scripture with us, he's really been majoring on two, two elements from, from his book. 
He's been talking about the gospel of the cross, the gospel message of Jesus Christ. Gospel, when you read that word in the Scriptures, it's, it's code word for good news, the good message. So, Peter has spent a portion of his letter talking about the good news of grace, the good news of the cross, how the cross makes us right with Jesus Christ. But it isn't just merely enough for him to just talk about gospel doctrine. He wants us to know the gospel, but then he also wants us to know that the gospel of Jesus Christ is meant to have an impact on our lives. So the gospel of the cross leads Peter to talk about the way of the cross. Because we believe the gospel, the gospel informs us to live like this. Because we believe this truth about Jesus Christ and we've been saved by the precious blood of the Lamb, we are to conduct ourselves in certain ways, think certain ways, speak certain ways. And as we've said before, this letter divides up into three major movements, and we, we find ourselves buried right in the middle of Peter's second major movement of his letter. If you look at the copy of Scripture in front of you, this, this second major movement starts with chapter 2, verse 11, and it's going to go all the way to chapter 4, verse 11. And what, what he's doing in this, this middle movement is he's, he's wrapping up some, some thoughts about what does it look like for us to live lives that image the gospel to those we, we live with and work with and talk with. And then today you're going to see him turn the corner and go, oh yes, because, because of this, because we are called to live a godly life, we are also called to do something else. And at first glance, it just seems sort of odd because he's, what he's doing is he's, he's doing this. He's taking the idea of the gospel and what it means for us in the way we live, godliness, and then he takes the idea of suffering for Jesus Christ, suffering for doing good things, suffering for righteous behavior, and he plops them right together and he says, these two are not disconnected. And we're going to see that today, that in verses 8 through 12, Peter's going to wrap up his concluding thoughts by giving just this, this summary statement. We are, as gospel people, to live godly lives. And what you're going to see is just all these phrases that we're going to, to read in verses 8 through 12 and, and look at very quickly as we, as we work through this first, this first section of our Scripture this morning, is he's not really saying anything new. In a way, he's going back and he's grabbing all of these phrases that he's been saying in chapter 2 through 11 all the way up to, to chapter 3, verse 8. But he's doing this as a, by, by way of reminder because we need to be remembered constantly on what the impact of the gospel is supposed to be in our lives. And then when he finishes verse 12 and rolls into verse 13, just as a door turns on its, on its hinge, Peter's going to turn his thought from gospel people living a godly life, and he's going to turn to this idea of how gospel people actually receive blessing from God when they suffer for Jesus Christ. He's going to pick up on this idea in verses 8 and 9. He's going to finish his thoughts, and then when he gets to verse 13 and 17, he's going to grab that idea of suffering, and he's going to run it out to its very end. The idea of suffering for Jesus Christ, whether it's emotional suffering, verbal suffering, 
Some Christians in this world suffer physical suffering because they claim the name of Jesus Christ. Peter's letter in this last half over these next several weeks will unpack what does that look like for us to respond as gospel people to suffering. And today, he's going to show us that we are to recognize that it is a blessing to receive suffering when we suffer for the sake of Jesus Christ. So look in your copy of Scripture there. We're going to look at verses 8 through 12. In verses 8 through 12, we see, see this idea. Gospel people are marked by godly living. So starting all the way back in chapter 2, verse 11, Peter has had one consuming objective in his mind. He wants us to know that when the gospel saves us, it will have a transforming effect on our life. The gospel doesn't merely save us from our sin. The The gospel does do that. It saves us from our sin, but as it saves us from our sin, saves us from God's righteous wrath toward us because we are in rebellion to Him, it saves us to something as well. It saves us from our sin, but it saves us to something. It saves us to a life of godliness. And Peter's going to help make the connection that the gospel, when it comes to us, it saves us from our sin, but it also saves us to godliness. And this life of godliness is the proof, it is the marks, it is the effects that we have truly been saved. See, Peter's concluding point is this, as he wraps up this grandiose thought right in the middle of the second major movement, what he's going to say is this, righteous conduct, good behavior, gospel living is proof that you are obtaining and will obtain the blessing of eternal life. And he makes this point by looking at two spheres of relationship for believers once again. So when you look at verses 8 and verses 9, In order to make this point, Peter comes to us and says, when believers interact with other believers, there is to be right conduct between these believers. Verse 8 says, finally, all of you have unity of mind, have sympathy, have brotherly love, have a tender heart, have a humble mind. And so he just simply comes out and says this, the the good conduct, the right gospel conduct that is to take place between believers is not dissension. It's not division. It's not not biting. It's not malice. It's not deceit. It's not hypocrisy. It's not envy. It's not slander. No, No, we as gospel people display the truth that the gospel has changed our hearts when we're actually marked by the things we find in verse 8. Unity, sympathy, love, tenderheartedness, and a humble mind. And, see, and that, that makes sense to us. We, we understand this, that, that we are marked by the gospel and godly living when we act this way toward believers, but, but Peter isn't satisfied with just leaving that. He wants us to understand that we as believers are also to act in such a way that exhibits the gospel even to those people who are not believers. See, Good conduct in relationships is to be between believers, but it is especially to be those, toward those who cause us suffering, to those who do some sort of evil toward us, to those who revile us, who are marked by abusive speech. This is what he says in the first part of verse 9. Do not repay evil for evil. Do not repay reviling for reviling. 
but on the contrary, bless. Do not repay, but do bless. Why? Because you were called to this as gospel people. See, there's going to be times when unbelievers pay believers with evil and reviling. And Peter's blanket statement is this. We as believers are not to get a payment of reviling, get a payment of slander, get a payment of evil, get a payment of of sin toward us, and then go, oh, well, well, you gave me some reviling, so I'm going to out-revile you. You paid me with some slander. You, you cut me down. You, you showed me some malice. You showed me some deceit. You showed me some, some hypocrisy and envy. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you a double portion back. Peter says that is not the way gospel people are to live their lives. Gospel people live their lives like this. When these things come to us, we in turn pour out blessing back to them. Now what's interesting is verse 9 leaves room for this sort of reviling, this sort of evil, this sort of tension, this sort of division, this sort of, sort of speech that can cut down into, and destroy and really degrade, it's mainly in the sense geared toward unbelievers who are doing this toward believers. That's the overarching theme that, that Peter unpacks in his letter, but there's also left room for when believers even do this to believers. I'm sure all of us have experienced at some point in time a believer using abusive speech toward us. We've all experienced at some time someone slandering us, and they make the claim to know Jesus Christ. Whether believer or unbeliever, whether husband or wife, whether friend or coworker, neighbor or sibling, Peter's answer, blanket statement, is this: because the gospel has saved you, you have no other way to respond other than to pour out blessing back onto them. What does Peter mean by blessing? What does it mean to, to bless somebody in this way? When somebody pays us evil, what does repayment of blessing look like to this person? What does payment and reviling to us, what, is, what does it look like to pay blessing out to someone else? I, I think Peter means this. Blessing, the action that we're supposed to do toward those who revile us, looks like this. We ask God to show His favor and grace upon those who have poured out evil and reviling upon them. So when someone reviles us, when someone lobs abusive speech to us, when someone brings hypocrisy or slander or some form of evil, whether it's physical or verbal or or emotional, because we claim the name of Jesus Christ, Peter's saying this, the action that is supposed to come out of us is I'm going to, on your behalf, seek God to pour out grace and mercy on you. God has poured out grace and mercy on me, and so I want the same grace and mercy to be poured out upon you. You paid me with evil. I want God to pay out mercy and grace to you. You have slandered me and cut me down. I'm going to pray and ask that God will pour out grace and mercy upon you because I have received grace and mercy. And Peter's about to make a connection here. Because we have received the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ, the outward actions that flow out from us, no matter the situation, should always be one that reflects what is true of us. And what is true of us is this. We are recipients of unfathomable grace. Grace upon grace. Mercy upon mercy. 
And so when someone comes to us cutting us down because we are in Christ, because of that grace and mercy, Peter says you evidence that you are actually saved by the gospel when you go, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. That's ultimately what Jesus Christ did on the cross. He exemplified this perfectly. There he is, pinned to the tree, broken and bleeding. And what is his response to those who have caused him immense suffering, mocking and reviling him? Peter says earlier in chapter 2, it wasn't this. He did not revile those who reviled him in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten to, to hurt them or harm them, but he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. And we imitate Christ in these ways. When people pour out suffering on us, we image Jesus by going, God, you have poured out grace and mercy to me, and I in turn ask that you would pour out grace and mercy to this person who is causing my suffering. But notice that Peter runs this call to good conduct, this call to bless those who are calling, causing us reviling and evil. He runs this through the grid of necessity. The call to bless those who are causing us suffering, the call to bless in light of evil and reviling, it is an optional. Look at verse 9 of what he says there. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. The language that he's using there with that little word, that, is this idea of a result. We are to bless when we receive evil and reviling so that we may obtain a blessing. Good conduct, this is what Peter's saying, good conduct is necessary to obtain eternal life. Why? So that you may obtain a blessing. Now, at first glance, you read this and you go, man, that really smells like works righteousness, right? Because listen to what he's saying. Don't do this when you're reviled. Don't do this when you suffer evil, but bless. Why? So that you will obtain a blessing. And the idea of blessing there, of obtain a blessing, isn't some just good pat on the back. This is, this is a Peter, Peter way of saying eternal life. So we obtain the blessing of eternal life when we are people who bless others. And like I said, at first glance, this, this smells like salvation by works, but, but Peter is not teaching that good works earn salvation. All we have to do is go back and look at the first major movement of Peter's letter, and it's everywhere. We are saved by grace. Verse 3, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Verse 18, know this, you were ransomed from your futile ways, inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but you were ransomed by the precious blood of Christ. You have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable. You've been born again through the living, abiding Word of God. Grace is always rooted in God first, God pouring out grace, God pouring out grace, God pouring out grace, pulling us into the family of God. Peter is not teaching that good works, blessing others, somehow earned salvation. The blessing of eternal life is not earned by the performance of good works, 
but it nevertheless belongs to those who demonstrate good works. See, Peter believed that those who have received new life from God will live transformed lives and that such lives provide evidence, necessary evidence that they have been converted. And one of the necessary evidences that we have truly been converted showing that we are obtaining the blessing of eternal life is this. When someone pours out a mountain of reviling, a mountain of sin against you, you by the grace and mercy and power of the Spirit walking by by the Spirit, being led by the Spirit, are able to image Jesus in that scenario. Truly, God promises the blessing of eternal life to those who live righteously. That's the whole point of verses 10, 11, and 12. What Peter does is he jumps back into the Old Testament, and he rips off a handful of verses straight out of Psalm 34. So when you read in verses 10, 11, and 12, what he's doing is He's giving Old Testament scriptural proof for his argument. He says, listen, if if you want to try to grasp what I'm trying to say, just look at what the psalmist said in Psalm 34. Whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him do these three things. Let him keep his tongue from evil, his lips from speaking deceit. Two, let him turn away from evil and do good. Three, let him seek peace and pursue it. Why? Because the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. His ears are open to their prayer, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. So that idea there in verse 10, whoever desires to love life, whoever desires to see good days, that's Old Testament code language for eternal life. So in verse 9 at the end, at the beginning of verse 10, this idea of obtaining the blessing of eternal life, those who desire to love life, those who desire to see good days, their lives will be marked by fruits, by markers, by evidence that they truly are those who have been made righteous by Christ himself. They will be people who keep their tongue from evil. They will keep their lips from speaking deceit. Their lives will be marked by actions of turning from evil and turning and doing good. Their lives will be marked by actions of seeking peace and pursuing it. Again, living a godly life does not earn salvation. Living a life of just mere good works does not earn salvation. Surely you know people who try to live their lives like this. It's called moralism. They're moralistic. They have good values. They have good morals. But their morals and their values are devoid of Christ because they are living a good life in the hopes of somehow conjoling God into saving them. But Peter's argument is this. We are not those people. We are a people who are made right with God the Father because God the Father has made us right with Himself through the blood of Jesus Christ. And because that is true, we show evidence to the world that Christ has saved me by the way I think. Christ has saved me by the way I act. Christ has saved me by where I go and what I do and what I say, etc., 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 Peter is not suggesting, though, that believers are going to do this perfectly. See, the danger here is then we start just stepping back and we examine our lives real quick and we start going, sweet mercy, man, I can count on my finger, you know, out of the ten times this week that that I was, you know, reviled for Christ or someone sinned against me or someone did something evil, whether it was emotional, verbal, or whether it was, you know, in other other countries, physical physical suffering from Christ. I can count on the hand the ten times that happened, nine times out of ten, you know, I, I didn't do what Peter asked me to do. 
Peter's not making the argument that we only obtain the blessing of eternal life if we do this perfectly every single time. But the general trajectory of our life is to be marked by what he's saying here. He's not suggesting that believers will do this perfectly and that such perfection is necessary to obtain the blessing of eternal life, but he was insisting that a transformed life is necessary to obtain this blessing. What he's doing is making very, very clear. Some of us in this room claim to know the gospel, but our life is devoid of anything that looks like the gospel. And what Peter is saying is this, no matter how much you claim to be a believer in the gospel, when your life is devoid of anything that looks like the gospel, then there is cause for concern. There is cause for concern. There's a disconnect somewhere. And he wants us and loves us enough, and the Holy Spirit through him is speaking to us today saying this, to step back and to examine our lives and to make sure this call to godly living, what does it look like? It looks like, at least in our relationships with believers and unbelievers, these certain things we see in verses 8 and 9, and Peter is saying this, we are to be marked out in these things because we are gospel people. And then he's done. The first half of this second major movement ends. And like I said earlier, like a door turns on his hinge, immediately he just turns right into the subject of suffering. His conclusion is done. He has talked a little bit about suffering in verse 9. This idea of we are those people, believers, who are being paid with evil. We are being paid with reviling. But notice that the call to bless those isn't just to those people who are easy to bless. Those who treat us good, we will, we will pray for them, that God would show grace and mercy to them. But we are to be those people who are called to show grace and mercy to those who cause us suffering. And it's like a little light bulb goes off in the back of his head and he goes, we need to unpack this idea of suffering for a while. And this is exactly what he's going to do. It's basically going to consume the last half of his letter. This new subject matter spins out of his teaching on godliness. Believers are called to bless those who revile them and cause them suffering, but Peter's teaching ultimately points back to Jesus himself from Luke chapter 6. In Luke 6, this is Luke's version of the Sermon on the Mount, he records Jesus saying this, But I say to you who hear... You are to love your enemies. You are to do good to those who hate you. You are to bless those who curse you. You are to pray for those who abuse you. See, it's easy to bless those who are a blessing, but it's harder to respond in a godly way to those who cause suffering. So the question becomes immediately this. How do we respond in a godly way to those who cause us suffering? It's the question I've got on my mind. Like, how do you do that? Like, what steps do we take? Does, does, does God help us understand what does it look like to unpack this idea of being a blessing, paying blessing to those who cause us suffering? And the answer is absolutely He does. It's, it's what He teaches us in verses 13 through 17. See, Peter's overarching answer to the question of how do we respond in a godly way to those who cause us suffering is with this answer. We're to recognize that there is a blessing for those who suffer for Jesus Christ. Blessing comes to us from God Himself 
when we suffer for righteousness' sake. See, suffering for righteousness' sake is the pathway of blessing. Look in your copy of Scripture. Look at verses 13 and the first, first half of 14. Peter writes this, Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Jump down to verse 17. For it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. So when you come off the hills of verse 12 and you go right into verse 13, at first it seems a little weird, right? Verse 12, God, the Lord God, Christ Himself, His eyes are on the righteous. His ears are open to their prayer, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for, for doing what is good? At first, it's like, I don't know, what, how, does, how do those two thoughts flow together? But what, what Peter's doing here is he's drawing an implication out of verse 12. What he's saying is this, listen, because the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, because his ears are open to their prayer, because the righteous are truly righteous, because God has made them righteous in Jesus Christ, ultimately, in the grand scheme of things, who in the world is there that can actually harm you if you're zealous for doing what is good and separate you from the love of Christ? And the implied answer is nobody can. Like, nothing can actually ultimately harm you if you're zealous for doing what is good. This is the same argument that Paul gives back in Romans chapter 8. In Romans chapter 8, Paul comes out and says, look at what God has done for His people. We know that those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to His purpose, for those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers, and those whom He predestined, He called, those whom He called, He justified, and those whom He justified, He glorified. This is, this is doxology. This is war. This is Paul coming out of the gates and going, I cannot believe what God has done for rebellious sinners in making a way for us to not only have union with the Father, but to dwell in intimate communion with Him. He's done it all through Jesus Christ. But then Paul draws this conclusion. He continues on. So what then shall we say to these things? These things that God has saved us and drawn us to Himself through the work of Jesus Christ. What shall we say about these things? This is what we can say. If God is for us, who on earth can be against us? Who, shall, who, who really should separate us from the love of Christ? Should tribulation, should distress, should persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No. In all of these things, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, life, angels, rulers, things present, things to come, powers, height, depth, anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Peter is saying the exact same thing. According to God's great mercy, He has caused us to be born again. And because this is true, who is there who can bring ultimate harm against you or I if we are zealous for doing good? Now, the immediate question that we have to follow that up is with, well, good grief, the guy, saw, <laughs> the guy persecuted me standing right over there 10 feet away. That's the guy who's causing me harm for suffering and doing good. 
But Peter isn't speaking gibberish here. He didn't have a moment of blackout and scribble down some hogwash and then come back and be like, I don't know what it's there. I guess it's already there. It should probably stay in there. It doesn't really make sense, but let me go ahead and just start talking about people who cause you suffering for righteousness' sake. What he's doing is he's building categories for us as believers. He's showing that the, the pathway of blessing is truly living according to the Scriptures. It's understanding this. We don't have to exact justice for ourselves when we have evil poured out against us, when we have reviling poured out against us, because ultimately when evil comes our way, when suffering, emotional, verbal, physical, comes our way, this suffering from these evildoers will not ever, ever, ever separate you from the love of Jesus Christ. And then he spins and he goes right into 14. But let me tell you this. There is the possibility that some of you might suffer for righteousness' sake. There is the possibility that some of you might suffer for righteousness' sake. And when you suffer for righteousness' sake, this is the pathway of blessing. Jesus says the same thing in Matthew chapter 5, verses 10 and 12 in the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. See, the fact that you are suffering for the sake of Christ is evidence that you have truly been transformed by Christ. See, people who don't give two rips about Jesus don't live lives that show Jesus. People who don't care about the gospel don't live lives that image the gospel. So when someone comes to you and persecutes you because your life looks like Jesus, Peter is saying that's actually a great blessing to you because it is proof that you have actually been saved by Jesus and you're being conformed to be like Jesus. A believer's present suffering is not a sign of punishment from God, but it is a sign of God's blessing upon them for their Christ-like conduct. So the question stems out of that then becomes, so how do we do this? I mean, what, what does that look like? So we're called to live a godly life, verses 8 through 12. We're to recognize that godly living includes suffering for Jesus Christ. This suffering will never ultimately divide us or separate us from Christ. That if we suffer for righteousness' sake, if we suffer because our lives image Jesus, if the gospel living of our lives brings to us suffering, Peter says you're going to have blessing. The question then, how do I do this? And Peter gives two implications and he couches them in commands. Look at the end of verse 14 and the beginning of verse 15. Peter says this, Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy. The first thing he says is this, How do you suffer well? First, you operate as those who have no fear of those inflicting suffering. 
Believers are blessed by God when they suffer. Therefore, they should not fear what unbelievers can do to them, but our lives are ultimately to be marked by a fear of God, the right, healthy, good fear of God. I trust God. I I honor God. I I listen to God. I, I do what God says. And if God tells me that these people causing me suffering will never ultimately separate me from the love of Christ, then what I can do is look at those who are causing me to suffer Christ, and I don't now feel the need to try to out revile them, to out slander them, but I can actually, truly, honestly, empowered by the Spirit of the living God in me, pour out blessing, asking for God to show grace and mercy to them. Why? because these people can't ultimately separate me from Christ. I want these people to know Christ. So Peter says, have no fear of them. Do not be troubled. Do not be imitated. Do not be fearful of the fear that they can bring to you. They will not separate you from Christ. The second thing that he commands us to do is this, is to honor Christ the Lord as holy. In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. See, to do this, to honor Christ the Lord as holy in your hearts looks like this. It means that a believer really believes that Christ, not those causing suffering, is in control. And to operate in this way is to maintain continually this deep-seated inward confidence in Christ as reigning Lord and King. To couch in your hearts that, yes, Christ is the Lord, Christ is the king. He is supreme. He is reigning. He is even reigning over this suffering that is coming my way. So what I'm going to do on the throne of my heart is not take the fear of those, the intimidation of those who are causing me suffering and plant it on the throne of my heart. But what I'm going to do is say, Christ the Lord, do what you do best. You rule. You reign. You are supreme. And in this moment, seat yourself on my heart. I'm going to set you apart as holy. I'm going to set you apart as Christ the Lord ruling and reigning in my heart. This means that because Christ rules and reigns in this situation, I truly don't have to have any fear of those who are causing my suffering. I do not need to be intimidated. I do not need to be troubled. And then Peter goes on. Always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you. Do this with gentleness and respect. Have a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. In light of these two commands, have no fear, honor Christ the Lord as holy, Peter comes and he gives three ways that this looks like. First, he says the implication of setting Christ apart as holy, the first implication of having no fear of those who are causing us suffering looks like this. It's the implication that unbelievers will recognize by the way believers respond to difficulties that their hope is in God rather than in the pleasant earthly circumstances. See, the inward hope of Christ manifesting itself outwardly is to be so compelling that it causes others to inquire about what drives you. It's this idea that when your life is so marked by Christ-likeness, when your life is just infused with the gospel, 
so that no matter what comes your way, whether it's blessing or whether it's suffering, the thing that comes out of you, the thing that is squeezed out of you, when the pressures of life, when the anxieties of life, when the, when the, when the press of suffering or even just blessing comes, no matter what comes your way, what oozes out of you is gospel. What oozes out of you is grace. What oozes out of you is mercy. In situations that people would expect this to happen, And even in situations when people would not expect this to happen. See, when people try to revile you and slander you for righteousness' sake, what they're trying to get out of you is evil. But when you return their evil for blessing, you cause me to suffer. Brother, let me know I am praying for you that grace and mercy would come your way. That simply undoes people. Stephen The first deacon, a man full of the Holy Spirit, is being pelted with stones because he represents Christ and he preaches Christ and he manifests Christ so much that he's seeing these people doing these things and he says the same thing that Jesus did. God, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. What did it say? They're like plugging their ears and they were trying to kill him faster because the word of blessing from Stephen as they were heaping out suffering, physical suffering upon him was so undoing them that they couldn't stand it. They just wanted to try to kill him quick and get rid of him. And I think this is what Peter is saying here. That we are always to be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is within you. The gospel breathes hope. And this is a hope that lives within us. We are saved to this hope. And when someone causes you to suffer and blessing oozes out from you, Peter said, be ready in that moment. Be ready to give a defense. Be ready to talk about why you're able to return blessing for reviling, why you're able to return blessing for slander, why you're able to return blessing for evil, and on and on and on. Because this is a primo opportunity to manifest Jesus Christ in front of these people. So first, the implication is that unbelievers will recognize by the way believers respond to difficulties that their hope is in God. The second thing that Peter wants us to see is this, that the call to return blessing when suffering comes our way is the call to answer this with gentleness and respect. We are to be people who have a good conscience in doing this. See, when we are under attack and when we are suffering for righteousness' sake, the temptation becomes to respond harshly or even to turn and attack. You cause me suffering, I'm going to get you real quick. You were short with your speech, or I'm going to be real short over back. You lied to me, or I'm going to really just do a lie back to you. You cut me down, or I'm going to cut you down. You hurt me, I will hurt you. And what Peter's saying here is this. We are not to be people who operate that way. We are to be people who issue blessing who respond to the pressures of life with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience. Peter calls for the opposite reaction. We are not to be people who are cutting, biting, quick to get even, putting justice in our own hands so that we can make things right with those person who, who did wrong to us. But we're to be marked by gentleness and respect. This results in unbelievers ultimately being put to shame on the day of judgment because they are slandering you for good. 
They see your good behavior. They come to you. They cut you down. And Peter says in that ultimate day when they stand before God in that final day of judgment, they are going to be put to ultimate shame and it will be shown to them their sin because of what they were doing. They were cutting down people who were truly marked by good behavior that flowed out of their relationship with Jesus Christ. So see, in all of this, what Peter's doing is I think he's trying to to help us understand the objective of godliness. Okay? The gospel of the cross saves us, and our argument has been that we're to walk the way of the cross, that we don't believe in the good news of the cross just merely as a way to be saved with and right with God, but that when we are saved by the gospel, it also has a transforming effect on us. And really what we're talking about, all that can be parked under that big category of godliness. See, the objective of godliness is to know God and be conformed to Christ from the day of your salvation until the day that Christ comes or to the the day that you die and you go to Christ. And Peter's teaching revolves around this question, what does this look like? I mean, this is what he's been packing essentially from chapter 2 of verse 11 all the way up to chapter 3, verse 17. He's been unpacking. This is what godliness in your life looks like. Don't, don't guess. Don't wander. Don't try to, try to figure this out. Let me show you ways that this looks like. Peter's teaching ultimately revolves around this question of what does this look like? What marks will be in our lives to prove that the gospel has made us right with God and is conforming us to Christ? He's building a category for us. Because we often think this way. I will know that I am living a godly life when my life is marked by ease and comfort. I know that I'm living godly when I have no worries. When I have a stress-free life when I have a happy marriage, when I attain that, that beloved place of having no debt, of having that perfect job, of having that happy home, of having that big house, of having well-behaved kids, of having a huge retirement, that, that is my goal. When I attain these goals of stress-free, anxiety-free, all these, good, all these good things in my life, then I will know that I'm truly living a godly life because these things will be manifestations of God's blessing. And then, then I will know that I have, I have reached godliness. But according to Peter, the marks that you have obeyed the truth of the gospel looks categorically different. I mean, starting all the way back in chapter 2, verse 11, he says this, you know that you have been saved by the gospel. You know that your life is reflecting Christ, a life of godliness, when you are battling sin. When your witness is being witness to all of those around you. When you submit yourself to God's creational institutions of government, God's institution of work, God's institution of marriage, the way a wife submits to her husband, the way a husband submits to his wife. When you are marked by relationships with believers and unbelievers in these ways, he says these are the things that mark us out as having truly understood the gospel of being and having lives that are truly marked by godliness. See, when we see these ever-growing things, these not, 
not perfect things, but when we see these ever-growing things that Peter's been talking about from chapter 2, verse 11, up until now in our lives, they are the true signs that we have been born again to a living hope. But surprisingly, Peter also gives one more marker that a gospel person is growing in godliness, and he says it like this, godliness also looks like suffering for the sake of Christ. You know you're living a life of godliness, a life of gospel actions when you're actually suffering for the sake of Christ. Gospel people must have a category for suffering, whether it's emotional, verbal, or physical. See, godliness, knowing God and being conformed to Christ, is not all ease and comfort. Often we confuse suffering as a punishment for sin. Like, right? Oh, my car broke down today. Well, it must have been because I was too short with my wife. My boss yelled at me today. Ah, oh, it must have been because I was very angry with my kid. And often what we do is we go, I only suffer when I sin. Like somehow God's divine punishment for us is, hey man, you didn't honor me like you were supposed to, so let me send a little suffering your way and really just straighten you up. See, often we confuse suffering Verbal, emotional, physical as punishment for sin. We, we think some sin has caused the suffering. So, if we can strive for no suffering, this means that we're living sinlessly. And hey, this means that we're living a godly life. Godliness means no suffering. Because that means I'm not sinning. And Peter comes along and says, categorically, this is not true. This way of thinking that we are suffering because we are being punished for sin equates to this. We must avoid suffering at all costs. Whatever we can do, however we can, we must avoid suffering at all costs. And if we experience suffering, we are somehow outside of God's will. But Peter, again, comes along and says, we have to have a category for suffering. This is not a right way of thinking. Because there are times for some of us, verse 17 says, that we will suffer for doing good because it is simply God's will that we suffer for doing good. See, suffering for righteousness' sake is not something to be shunned. Rather, it is something to be embraced. For some believers, suffering becomes a tool in the hands of God that conforms us to Christ and it broadcasts to the world the hope of the gospel that is in us. See, as a person saved by the gospel, you and I, the question we ultimately have to ask in the end is, do we have a category for suffering? Are we living lives of godliness? I'm not talking about actions or works that somehow make us right with God, but I'm just talking about, do our lives reflect what we proclaim? We proclaim to be believers of the gospel. We claim to be people who have obeyed the gospel. Do our lives just simply reflect that truth? And then as we reflect that truth in every sphere of life, do we have a category for suffering if and when that suffering comes to us? Because when that suffering comes to us, the tendency, the deceit of sin is this. You've done something wrong. But Peter comes along and says this. For some of us, it is God's will because it conforms us to Christ and it's actually a means by which God uses to broadcast the good news of the gospel to the people of our world who need to know and believe the gospel. A life 
of gospel-driven godliness is not separated from a life of suffering for Christ. Let's pray. God, you are good. We thank you for the cross. Thank you that you save us, not because we deserve to be saved or because we were somehow special above the rest, but that you have saved us. You have truly made us right with yourself because of your great love and your great mercy toward us. The gift of salvation is incredible. The gift of the gospel makes us right with the Father. God, we're thankful that, that you empower the Word to come to us to save us, and you, you empower the Word to come to us to grow us in salvation. So, God, I pray the simple prayer that the words that were heard this morning, now that they've been spoken and they're out there in the air, that you, Father, would do a great work in growing us. For those of us who have suffered for Christ, whether at the hands of believers or unbelievers, that you would help us to image Jesus, to not revile when we are reviled, but to entrust ourselves to God in these moments. God, would you make yourself famous in our city and in our neighborhoods and in all of our relationships through the way that we show Jesus in our interactions and in our words and in the way we think so that through our good conduct, these, these unbelievers may see our good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Would they, would they hear our words, our profession of salvation, and would they see the way we react to suffering? And would you, Father, do a great work in drawing them to Christ through, through this means? We love you, Father, and we ask that you now would be with us as we go out throughout the rest of the week. Manifest yourself amongst your people. Draw the lost and make yourself famous. Christ's name I pray. Amen.